I'm Alex Shaw. I'm Sharon Shaw. And, and welcome, welcome to, to School of Movies. <laughs> the Howling Trilogy. This is a collection of three after-school clubs on the first three films in this so far eight-film Howling series, and we are combining and re-releasing them on the main feed for this year's Halloween Spooktacular. What you have here are The Howling from 1981, directed by the great Joe Dante of Gremlins and Inner Space, Matinee and Looney Tunes back in action. Then the barely related super low budget sequel, Your Sister is a Werewolf from 1985, filmed in Czechoslovakia and directed by Philip Mora, who also wrote and directed the third film, The Marsupials from 1987, which was otherwise entirely Australian and concerns werewolves with pouches like kangaroos. So this really is a round-the-world wolf trip across three continents for three very different flavours of lycanthrope. Enjoy! What do you see? The Howling. Somewhere in this city, in this human jungle, it begins... Just try. He's right there. What do you see? What's there, Karen? What do you see, Karen? What's there? Somewhere in these woods, in this primal, sensuous, secret place, lies an experience too terrifying for words. And now, all anyone can do is watch and wait. Tonight I'm going to show you something. Make you believe. The Howling. We've been putting this off for a while because we really want to talk about The Howlings 2 and 3 in this very long run series. But to do that, we had to talk about The Howling 1, which is less good. If only Even though, we can explain why it is not in the least bit connected with two or three. Even though The Howling 1 is the one with all the professionals in it, and The Howlings 2 and 3 are the ones where it's like people going, oh, we could be filmmakers, why not? Tell me yeah. I'm wrong. No, you are absolutely right. But this is the thing, the enthusiasm shows through, and the ugh shows through from the people who really could be doing better. So uh, this first film is based on a novel of the same name uh, from 1977. The total series runs to eight films, some of the later films drawing on a bit more from the book. Mm. We are definitely not covering all eight films. Once you get past three, it's like, ah, I can, I can do without this. Four is basically, as I recall, a remake of The Howling. Yeah, 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 it is. I, I I have read The Howling. You have? I have. It was a long time ago when I was going through my teenage pick-up horror books at Jumble Sales and charity shops phase, and it got lost in a lot of Dean Koontz and James Herbert and stuff of that nature. Um, I don't remember anything particularly remarkable about it. Okay, so the plot for the book runs thus. Karen White, played in this film by Dee Wallace, who was uh, Elliot and E.T.'s mom, and... Poor Dee Wallace, by the way. She gets... like Her in this and... Uh, was it her in uh, Close Encounters or is it the mom from uh, Christmas Story? I don't remember. Mm. But 
her, the mum from Christmas Story. Melinda Dillon, who sadly departed just recently. And uh, not Nancy Travis, um, Lewis from Robocop. Oh, uh, Nancy Allen. Nancy Allen. I always get the three of them mixed up. Yeah, okay. So, yeah, Dee Wallace in this uh, is a a TV news anchor in what feels like the studio from uh, Dawn of the Dead. Yes, yeah. Uh, and she's being stalked by a serial killer, Eddie Quist. And there's so much of like this backstory that we don't really get in the film. She's being stalked and she's upset, but this is just the precursor to, wow, werewolf. Uh, Ed- as the movie is like, wow, werewolf. Almost immediately. Now we're going to tell you some other stuff. Or more like, wow, wolf. Uh, <laughs> Eddie Quist is played by Robert Picardo, who's usually either very nice or comedically threatening, but in this is just a stone-cold sociopath. He's, He's horrible. Uh, you don't even get to see him for the first time. Most of it, yeah, no. Uh, so she conducts a complicated sting operation with the police. They're trying to trap the serial killer, so she kind of plays into his spider web by going to the porno peep show shop that See, he requests of her. in the movie, you get none of that precursor stuff. So the first question you're asking yourself is, how the fuck did she wind up in here? No, no time to explain this. Yeah, we'll just assume he grabbed her off the street the and movie, dragged her in. The movie is one hour and 26 minutes long. On You had time. They had time. So, yeah, she agrees to meet him in a sleazy porno theatre. Eddie forces Karen to watch a video of a young woman being bound and I'm going to say assaulted because the R word will come up so many times in this. But there's a lot of the R word. So you're going to get squeamish, folks, like us, probably. For which we do apologise. Yeah. Um, But ultimately, this is why we've been holding off talking about the howling one. It's very rapey. Anyway. She's forced to sit, but see the thing is, it's not approving of that. No, the, oh, the movie is not. is saying on no uncertain terms, this is terrible. The problem is, it seems to rope in sex to that as well. Yes. There's no examples of healthy sex in this film. No, really. It's absurd. Mm, yeah, like it's a dichotomy, and then not showing the other side. No. Okay, so she's forced to watch uh, what you referred to as a gimp rape video. And I was like, oh, a a gimp is being raped? No, a gimp is doing the rape. Yes. Brilliant. Um, And then Karen turns around to see Eddie uh, looking scary, uh, sort of illuminated in the the light of the cinema projector. Oh, you've missed out the worst bit of this section, though. It's not even what she's seeing on screen. It's the fact that she's got him babbling in her ear about about how these people aren't real, Karen. They can't feel anything like you and me, Karen. It's absolutely fine to do this to them, Karen. In other words... Oh, my God! NPC theory's been around for a long, long time. Yes, it has. Adopted by psychopaths who gleefully want to, at least in movies, disassociate themselves from the human race. So the police enter and shoot Eddie, and uh, although Karen is safe, she suffers amnesia. Yeah, it's worth noting, by the way, the police officer who saves her, I'm doing air quotes here, um, just like turns up and starts randomly firing into the booth with no regard for whether or not he might hit her. It's sheer luck she manages to roll out of the way of the bullets. But Robert Picardo's werewolf dude isn't even dead anyway. Is it because it's um, Monster Squad rules where uh, the, the werewolf has to be is still because like in the Monster Squad a werewolf fall, like gets blown up and his limbs go all over the place and then and rush back together, back together like a turbo like a hairy T one thousand kicked in the nards and it does nothing. Look, let us not talk about the Monster Squad. There's time enough to talk about that anyway. 
So she's suffering from amnesia and she goes to a therapist named Dr. George Wagner. In this played by Patrick McNee, mm. uh, the guy who played, um, was he John Peel in The Avengers? No, not that one. Correct. Um, yeah, the British TV show The Avengers, which was sort of during the sort of the James Bondy, in like Flint, uh, Man from Uncle, espionage uh, craze of the 60s. So um, Ian McNeese is a decent fellow. He was actually in a James Bond film, actually, the last oh, okay. Roger Moore one, View oh. to Kill. And he remains throughout this film actually a fairly decent guy. He suggests she... And Asterisk. <laughs> Um, they, they, he has a good patter as a psychologist, but he suggests that she come to this retreat. Yeah, he's saying that this is all happening because she's burned out and stressed and she needs to take a break and recharge. Right. So they Sensible advice thus far. Uh, so her, Dr. George decides to send her and her husband, Bill, fuck Bill, Bill is terrible. Bill is awful. Um, to the colony, a secluded resort in the countryside where he sends patients for treatment. Oh my God. The colony is filled with <laughs> strange characters, and one, a sultry nymphomaniac named Marsha, 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 tries to seduce Bill. She doesn't try; she does. <laughs> like she, she, she's like. Uh, she doesn't have to try very hard either. She's, she's on the like... she's on the punch table, going, "I'm Arlene. I'm like Joseph. Do you like my breasts?" And he's like, <laughs> he's like "Flash a bit of nipple," and he is on her. I'll like, have some. Why on I'll have some punch, please, uh, he says. And she's like, hmm, here you go. See anything you like. And she's kind of, this is where it kind of gets like a Lifetime movie, mm. where it's like, this is the, the, the woman you tell mom not to worry about. Absolutely. Do you know what? Don't ever move in next door to an attractive woman. And that's the end of that story. And sex is bad. Anyway. <laughs> uh, so Bill says, I'm here with my <clears throat> wife. And she goes, like leans in and goes, why? And she's very much portrayed as this like very sexy, dark, dusky kind of seductress, mysterious girl. I believe Peter Andre sang a song about her. I'm sure he did. See later on, Pete. No one gives a fuck about ya. She's like a wannabe vampire. Yeah, she is very vampire. Yeah, they give her like a there's a there's a a variance between the characters in terms of how natural the fabrics they're wearing are. Like you oh. can tell certain groups of people because they tend to incline towards fur and suede and sheepskin and, like that. and then people who are like the city folks who, who wear, wear check shirts and jeans. Very exactly, very sort of socially conforming stuff. And Marsha wears a beads, <laughs> a, a beads, and that's but also about it. a patent leather dress. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Sweaty. So I suppose you could argue that she's representing the, the sort of tension between the two, only she's not. She is very firmly in the first group. Uh, anyway, when uh, Bill tries to uh, resist her unsubtle sexual overtures, he is attacked and scratched on the arm by a werewolf while returning to his cabin. They say that so casually, like yes. how they were asking for a glass of water. Mm. After Bill's attack, Karen summons her friend Terry Fisher to the colony. Come, I summon you, Terry Fisher. Was that the journalist? 
Uh, yes. There's a, a journalist named Terry Fisher, who's another lady in this film that can be there to be killed and stalked and scream and do all of that stuff. Indeed. And her useless uh, partner, who actually they are engaging in uh, healthy sex, but off screen. We never get yeah, to see a sex see scene because it's not important to the plot. It really isn't. But they are effectively the nosy podcasters who start digging yeah. up shit. From the Halloween, the third film called Halloween. That would be the sequel to Halloween, not to be confused with the reboot of Halloween that was called Halloween. Or as I call it, Halloween 11, the precursor to Halloween Kills, which came out last year and was fucking rubbish, and Halloween Ends, which I've yet to see, but has got a lot of ground to make up for. Subsequently saw Halloween Ends, it's fucking rubbish. It doesn't, <laughs> I'm assuming. Oh, uh, yeah. So uh, Terry, we'd have heard by now. Terry connects the the resort to Eddie. Uh, that's the psychopath that was stalking uh, D. Wallace at the beginning. Um, through a sketch that he left behind, having previously discovered that Eddie's body disappeared from the morgue, so he got shot, but he didn't die. Karen begins to suspect. How unguarded are morgues, by the way? I don't Every know. werewolf film and what, story. What are you guarding them from? Something in a morgue leaving. Who's going to get bodies apart from mad doctors? Like, okay, so reanimator's going to try and get bodies. If Jeffrey Combs approaches your morgue, get extra security. And if you're in Bud the Chud, Chud 2, you may need to get the security guards on the other side of the door because the, you got zombies on your hands. Exactly. There's just there's a complete lack of interest in stopping things getting out of morgues. Or in. Um, Karen begins to suspect that Bill is hiding a secret more threatening than marital infidelity. Later that night, Bill meets Marsha at a campfire in the woods. While having sex in the moonlight, they undergo a frightening transformation into werewolves. Now... Here's the thing, folks. We never get the interior of Bill's story. We see Bill from the outside approach this woman for some punch. They they make fuck eyes at each other. And then she kind of turns up inside a cabin, kisses him, and he's like, no, nah, I'm married, and wanders off. Then he gets attacked by the werewolf. But here's the thing. They meet up by the campfire. They start having sex like humans. And the, uh, the uh, music is very sort of fluty and floaty and, and uh, 70s. And very kind of, ah, oh, look at this. The, uh, the natural way to, to make love. And then he starts turning into a werewolf. And so does she. Now, a lot of furries out there are like, go on. Oh, no. <laughs> no, folks. No, 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 Better no, stay no. away from this. This is the opportunity that they had to make being a werewolf weirdly sexually beguiling to sort of, I suppose, romanticize going to to one's animal side. Yeah. And Joe Dante, the director of this, who, by the way, we love Joe Dante. I want to make this abundantly clear. He's brilliant. We love Gremlins. We love Gremlins 2 way more. We love Inner Space. We love Small Soldiers. Eerie Indiana, we were the ones who watched that. The hole in 3D is pretty good. And we especially love Matinee, which we saw really late in life um, and and is a really wholesome film that strangely felt appropriate during COVID because it was like it's set during um, the Cuban Missile Crisis, so all the kids are scared and they John Goodman puts on a, a, a radioactive giant ant movie to uh, distract. distract them effectively. It's lovely. We love Joe Dante. Joe Dante's attitude to werewolves in this is, Ew, 
Ew, disgusting. Yeah, whatever they do, it's gross. They're horrible. Mm -hmm. They are all hateful and predatory, except for Patrick McNee that we mentioned, who is very much, we must live off the land, grow cattle to to feed upon, and we must allow channeling of our animal side. And the rest of them are like, bullshit, dude. Why want to hunt and kill and taste blood? Pointedly, we never see Patrick McNee in his werewolf Werewolf form. Indeed. They don't present the other side of this dichotomy. And and so it's not compelling at all as a film. Effectively, what you've got is Dee Wallace pitches up at Camp Werewolf and goes, ooh, i got to get out of here fast. Very sensible. Uh, unfortunately, there are no camp werewolves because that would make it better. That would be interesting. But yeah, it's more interesting than this. It's one of the grossest sex scenes I've seen outside of a Brian Yuzner uh, picture. I the- don't even know if the Brian Yuzner ones you can even count them as sex scenes. So the problem we have with um, was his name Brian, the the husband. Uh, Bill. The problem we have with Bill is that he's a fucking prick when he's a human and he's awful when he's a werewolf he is unnecessarily aggressive in situations that don't call for it and he has this grotty big moustache that you were allowed to have in the late 70s early 80s it was practically compulsory I mean I'm I'm less bothered by the moustache than you I think but the whole the hair the tash the slight flares that you haven't fully committed to it just all looks and he's just a very manly man and that is boring to watch yeah and the fact that he, he he does go from, oh, I can't cheat on my wife, to, yeah, cheating on my wife, that's great. Constantly, like, hugging Dee Wallace around the neck. Yeah, like, when they're driving up, and I think this is intentional, he's got his arm all the way around her neck, and the it's a low-angle, slight Dutch angle on her... So and she's kind of gripping his arm with her hands, which you said is is a way of like making sure he doesn't throttle her. Yeah, but it's also positioned to be like he, she's deriving comfort from being throttled. Yeah, there's an odd tension in the sense that between her where her hands are positioned and her facial expression, it's difficult to tell whether she's holding his arm mm. to her or, or holding, holding it, it down from, from her, yeah. her throat. Uh, so I mean, obviously the film doesn't like Bill either. No, and. When he turns into a werewolf, he's got this horrible... Like, a werewolf with a moustache doesn't work already. Like, that, you've already it's screwed up. weird whiskers. So he gets a hairier face, but, like, <laughs> slightly balder chin than you'd imagine. So he gets the big werewolf contacts in his eyes, and he gets massive, huge teeth and starts grinning away because he's just... He's really liking turning into a werewolf. And just to make it that much grosser for Sharon, he just this massive thread of drool just just trickles out of his lips and he's sort of glaring down at this girl turning into a werewolf as well and going, yes, yes, werewolf time. And... Like I said, somebody on the effects team went nuts with the KY. She claws at him, he kind of bites at her... And then there's this really quite elegant rotoscope section where it sort of zooms away from them and they're silhouetted as humanoids in the uh, moonlight and then they slowly morph into wolf forms uh, lit by the campfire. And and it's still weirdly in the missionary position. And I'm like, okay, right. Car- what dogs don't do. Carry on. And then it cuts to something else. I'm like, no, no, no you had weird freaky deaky werewolf sex right there and you cut away everything else in this film isn't as interesting as that but again everything about the way the sex scene goes because suddenly it goes from the flute of oh isn't this lovely to oh my god they're terrible werewolves but here's the thing folks we haven't had any of Bill's interior. The last thing we saw was him trying to, like, getting attacked by a werewolf and then arguing with his wife, who's like, I just want to get out of here! 
yeah. And it, him going, I'm going to go away and drink a beer like a man would. And then he meets up with this girl and turns into a werewolf and so does she. But here's the thing. I don't think he's got a manual. I don't think, like, you get bitten by a werewolf and then you suddenly know this is good, this is fine. Like, when he starts turning into a werewolf, he seems chuffed. He's really happy to be... Like, it's not like American Werewolf in London uh, with Rick Baker, who, by the way, was makeup consultant here. Rick Baker's effects on that transformation scene make it seem like the worst thing ever for poor David. Mm. Like, it is the most agonizing, painful of werewolf transformations. And specifically, he can feel himself losing himself to his animal side. Yeah, and his performance combined with those makeup effects make werewolf, uh, American Werewolf in London very terrifying for the audience, in part because you desperately don't want it to happen. Yeah. Uh, we will be doing American Werewolf in London at some point very soon. It's uh, well, maybe, maybe next Halloween. It is one of my favorite monster movies of all time. I've held off on it for many, many years because it was directed by John Landis, who oof, you want to talk history. about you want to talk about problematic directors. If you uh, go back and consult our episode of uh, After School Club uh, on the, during the Spielberg season on the Twilight Zone. Anyway, so seemingly Bill has quietly off camera embraced his werewolf side and seems to be really into the idea of turning into one of them now but because we don't get to see there's no conflict on his part and as i said uh to to you the the really interesting hmm, the really captivating story we've got here is you've got d wallace who is a human woman and wants to stay a human woman you've got this scary but beguiling werewolf woman who actually turns out to be not evil, but definitely has embraced her wild side. And you've got this dude trapped in the middle, being pulled towards civilization and away from civilization. That's a movie. That's a story. That's someone who feels trapped. And at the same time, very close to feeling freed. That There's tension there. There's something going on. There's none of that in this film. Obviously, that's Twilight as well, but Bella also isn't torn on this. It's like Jacob keeps going, do you want to be a werewolf or a vampire? A vampire. Okay, second time I'm going to ask you, it's a whole other book, werewolf or vampire? Vampire. Okay, thus rendering the third Twilight book entirely unimportant, even though it's actually the best of the five films. So Stephanie Meyer effect effectively completely buggered up any of Bella feeling pulled back towards humankind or wolfkind. She squandered the, like, straightforward love triangle with the, you know, you can be more like a werewolf with me, be more like her, and also be pulled back towards Charlie and her friends. Bella is not a girl who is... Uh, conflicted and torn, Bella is a girl who is nagging Edward to make her a vampire and Edward is manipulating her and going, I don't think you want to be a vampire enough. Mm. Maybe and if you still love me by graduation, if you still love me a year from now, if you still love... Basically, I'm trying to make you a little bit older so this looks a bit less creepy. It and doesn't. <laughs> the guts of the uh, philosophy underpinning it is, ooh, gross, I don't want to look old. Yeah. Uh, yeah, obviously the, the the poisoned brain wrong of uh, Twilight as a series is Bella sees a vision of herself as a uh, old woman uh, in a field, and rather than going, okay, that scares the hell out of me, but I suppose, and concluding by the end, this is the way of things. We are going to get old. Uh, Bella goes, Ew, I'll be all wrinkled. 
quickly and I'll smell of pee. I mean, a big part of it, and we're not talking about... Like my grandma, who I hate. (laughs) A big big part of it is the fundamental teenage, I think I'm going to live forever, of I love you so much, I can't bear the idea that one day we will die and I will be separated from you. But uh, the end conclusion is... And then the dog fell in love with her baby, who conveniently grew to the uh, appropriate birthing age uh, uh, within just a few years. Mm. And the uh, vampire boy that she'd always loved uh, made her a vampire. And then they all had superpowers and they got to run on the beach forever because uh, being a vampire is great. And so the outcome is, but everybody will be together in heaven. It's just that we don't have to go through that awkward dying bit. It isn't. It's it's just in it, 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 it's they've made heaven on earth by exactly. defying it's death. Like and, paradise. Yeah. yeah. Although you know, Jacob will by the by the slow decay of time, he will, or Eventually. by the sword, he will die. Eventually. And yes. Renesmee will be alone. And very very. As sad. nightfall in winter that comes without a star, yes. so will it be with you, Renesmee. And also, you weird baby-faced girl with a giant face of a woman on the baby. Yeah. And also, over eternity, I can guarantee you this: either Bella. You're going to get very bored with Edward because he's a chud. Is going to get very bored with you, and the two of you will go off looking for something more entertaining. (sighs) Best sequence in all of those films is where everyone fucking gets ripped to shit at the end in that last battle, and then as we hate movies with their commentary reacted, it was all a dream. Fuck (laughs) off. (laughs) Anyway. On with the howling, shall we? There's, yes, there are a couple of reasons to see this, uh, and those involve... Um, I mentioned Rick Baker as a makeup consultant in this. He is maybe the greatest guy who ever did makeup. Uh, he's a great guy, but like in terms of his skill, he was behind uh, American Wolf in London, Thriller, the Michael Jackson video, Planet of the Apes 2001. That, that was the one where I was like, I really like these ape costumes. Yeah, yeah they do look fun. Brilliant. <laughs> Sorry, I just had a vision of my, in my head of Helena Bonham Carter in the monkey face, and it was just like, yeah, it does look a bit silly. Okay, well, he <coughs> he failed to make it look like Marky Mark was a person, unfortunately. Well, yeah, <laughs> there ain't no yeah, makeup who can, that can that. fix that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he, Blaming Rick Baker for that one. He also worked on The Grinch, King Kong, 1976, as an uncredited makeup artist, uh, but also King Kong 2005, the uh, Peter Jackson one. So that's two Kongs. In fact, am I wrong in thinking, wasn't Rick Baker the one in the ape costume, just sort of walking around on two legs going, yep, and King Kong, no, I'm not going to act like a monkey, don't ask me. i got to get really ripped to act like a monkey. So what you're saying is two Kongs make a fight. Indeed. But he was also uh, uh, special makeup on The Wolfman, the Benicio Del Toro one, uh, and Men in Black, and Wolf, the one with Jack Nicholson and uh, James Spader. So it feels like, to be blunt, I insist on being in anything to and about werewolves. <laughs> Men in Black, Hellboy he was a consultant on. My God, the makeup in Hellboy is magnificent. The Ring, the American ones, that is. Uh, X-Men 3, and I was like, why just X-Men 3? Oh, Beast. And uh, Maleficent was one of his more uh, recent ones. However, uh, Rob Bottin was, I believe, the main makeup guy on this. Uh, And uh, he was behind The Thing, which is one of the greatest pieces of practical just ever made. see where the grossness is coming from. Yep. Uh, He was also part of The Fog, Legend, the one where Tim Curry plays a giant 
crab-headed man. Robocop 2, but not 1. Total Recall for Verhoeven. Oh, my oh, God. Oh, the eye-popping. The eye-popping, yeah. yep. yep. Inner Space, so the, or when, when Jack turns popping. into a... <laughs> like that. Um, Deep Rising. Also involving uh, Robert Picardo. Deep Rising, which has some really gross kind of like digested by a squid type uh, effects. And The Witches of Eastwick and Mimic. So he worked with Guillermo del Toro. Now, the actual fully transformed werewolves look a bit ridiculous. They look like really tall hyenas. And they've got these sort of like, they've got twisted bodies, but... Basically, practical werewolves are hard to do, but they always look so much better than CGI werewolves. I can't think of a single CGI werewolf that looks better than even just the werewolves in this that aren't the best-looking werewolves. In particular, not even necessarily the werewolf, but the transformation scenes. Because yeah. with, with CG, it for some reason that I can't quite put my finger on, and I do not wish to disparage the CG artists at all. Who are under feeling, extreme pressure, especially right now. I, I have a feeling it is more to do with somebody further up the chain insisting on shortcuts. But you have to pay attention to every single phase of the transformation. Yeah. Otherwise, the, the bits in between look abysmal with practical you have to because you have to layer on the fur yeah. this becomes this unless you're going to cut away and Precisely. then magically they're yeah. they're a full and werewolf ultimately, if you end up not using the in-between frames that's fair enough but you have them most likely they'll use the in-between frames because if you've got these awesome looking yeah. makeup why effects why would you not it? yeah exactly um but yeah they're just a bit in the last words that david says before he's full werewolf I'm sorry I called you meatloaf, Jack. Uh, just these bits where you see him losing himself. Something about practical and werewolves is just a match made in hell in the best way possible. Yeah. But So in this, the actual final werewolves don't look all that fantastic, but some of the transformations are really kind of, ah, oh, look at that, this kind of stuff. Robert Picardo, who finally comes back and goes, ah, I want to give you a piece of my mind, shoves his fucking claw nail into his own head where there's a bullet wound, takes out a piece of his brain just to go, see, I went <laughs> to poor D. Wallace. Meanwhile, there's a bullet sticking in his forehead that he could quite easily remove but doesn't yeah uh he's like his werewolf transformation takes a long while there's a lot of muzzle going on there and uh, a lot of like pokey ears and it's it's disgusting uh, but it's not as good as a bit that you wouldn't expect to be quite so impressive which is when the journalist woman who we mentioned before who's absolutely useless is only there to get killed and scream and run away from a werewolf during the running away from werewolf screaming and, and just before she gets killed uh, she gets grabbed by a werewolf through a, a, a wooden slatted door just like that and she happens to have a hatchet handy so she hacks off the hand and the, they just stick with that werewolf hand as it sort of convulses on the ground, bleeding and smoking, and then slowly starts to go through its own metamorphosis, returning to its human form. So it goes from disgusting werewolf clawed hand to realistic-looking, like, arm. trembling human hand and arm. And, and it's that's probably the best bit of this film, considering how fucking squandered that werewolf-crazy sex scene is. Indeed. There is also, in this... 
liberal use of air bladders. Oh yeah, the air bladders are really useful for for werewolf stuff because you basically you you layer skin over over your artist's your your actor's face and underneath that you put these like squeezy pocket whoopee cushions attached to cable uh, attached to tubes and you then palpate those so it looks like the skin is going blah, 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 and bubbling up from underneath which is very suggestive of change. It really is, yeah. I when I was a kid I had a toy which was a very fluffy spider mm. and it had a rolled up air bladder mm. in its belly with a, a bulb attached and basically you squeeze the bulb and the air bladder unrolls yeah. making the spider jump forward it's oh, really yeah. cool I had one of those too it's like a, a long frog tongue yeah, yeah. exactly yeah. Um, okay so eventually D. Wallace getting pictures up in a barn that's full of like old dead cats and skulls and shit. Like, literally, there are house cats nailed to the wall. And we've just seen Texas Chainsaw Massacre as part of our big Halloween horror watch, and we were just like, this is as classless as that household in that. Mm -hmm. Like... This is fucking gross, there's guys. There's also, and I only noticed this the first time this watch, but there's a bit where they pan down and up on, on top of the, the wooden wall, they have what I believe is just supposed to be an arrangement of bones and skulls. Yeah. But it looks like out of those bones and skulls, they have tried to construct a, a skull face. Yeah. And... To do with the placement of where certain skulls with like sheep skulls with black horns are, right. it looks like Banjo Kazooie. It's got two <laughs> googly eyes that point off in the wrong directions, and it just looks ridiculous. Okay, so at that first meeting at the colony, when they're all having a barbecue on the beach, there's a, a very a, a sweet couple where you know he's a, a little friendly and she's even more friendly. But then when they see D. Wallace here, they're like, "Oh, be a werewolf! It's absolutely great." At first, I was fighting against it, but then you know, it turned out that it's being it's really good. And it's like again, we're not seeing any of this take place. It's all behind the scenes stuff, which feels like it would be potentially fascinating mm -hmm. if Bill was not a horrible person. Yes, um, and. You, there was an old man on the uh, beach as well who like, starts off howling at the moon just like a crazy old hobo, but then tries to throw himself in the fire because he can't take it anymore. And he's just like, he seems really agitated. And you're like, oh, you poor old guy. Obviously, he's a werewolf and he just he can't take this existence anymore. But here, he's like, I want to go and hunt and kill enough of this eating cattle. And I'm like, okay, so all of my pity for this poor old dude is just yeah. evaporating the right now. The existence that he can't bear anymore is Patrick McNee trying to persuade him to be a vaguely socialised werewolf. Yeah, this is the thing. I, rather than doing the del Toro thing of going, these things that you thought were horrendous monsters are actually more human than humans. Mm, more yeah. human than human. Absolutely. And they're intriguing and they have feelings and they have pasts and they have regrets and they are trapped. At the very least show them being kind to each other so that we get that sense of community about it. But this is a reverse del Toro where it's like all monsters are terrible and they want to kill you yes. and they're gleeful about wanting absolutely. to kill you. And so uh, Patrick McNee's like, no, 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 we've got, you know, the world's moved on and we haven't. We've got to somehow find a way to adapt to the society where we're not going to get found. And we also, we, you know, we can live off cattle. And all of the rest of them are like, no, I want to give in to my urge to kill people. Mm, yeah. And then he gets, they, they, they cast him out and he ends up getting shot with a silver bullet. And he's like, oh, thank God. <laughs> <laughs> it is that abrupt as well. Yeah. 
<laughs> but that's what I'm talking about with the dichotomy. There's no real push-pull with any of these. They're all assholes except yes. him, and then yes, he dies. Yeah. And occasionally somebody will say something that makes you go, oh, that sounded interesting. Is there more to that? No. Nope. And again, the confusion it becomes in that kind of... I sort of remember this happening with Buffy. Like, when you're a vampire, you automatically become malevolent. Mm. And like by and large... They're all like really mean spirited and predatory. Yeah. D. Wallace in the. This uh, is giving wolves a bad name, 101. Basically, yeah. Uh, D. Wallace and, and a dude who turns up who reminds me again of the dude from Dawn of the Dead. You know the guy I'm talking about? Yeah. yeah. Um, they both work in the TV station together. The one who looks a bit like Hugh Laurie. Uh, they escape from this barn full of angry werewolves. They barricade the barn with a rifle. And I was like, that's again, that's a really good sequence where they've got their backs against the, the doors. And it's like, we need to find something to bar this with. I've only got my rifle, but I've got nothing else. So do I run and try to defend us with this rifle from, what, seven or eight really fast, scary werewolves? Can I kill them all? Or is it actually better just to being used as a bar here? It just... It, that happens immediately. There's no tension. It is a movie that throws away tasty meat and and only gives us awful. Mm-hmm. It's so frustrating to look at Bones what a waste this was. Is what we get. Yeah. Um, and eventually, the, the shocking ending is they drive away. The Bill werewolf, who I think has a moustache... <laughs> Uh, attacks them and they shoot him. Then the, uh, a cop werewolf pulls them over and then bites D. Wallace on the shoulder? Yeah, they think they've got away. Wolf cop. And then there's a cop parked across the road and D. Wallace at this point does not realise that almost everybody in this area is werewolves. Mm. So she sees him and she's like, oh, Sam, thank God, thinking cop, you'll be on our side, yeah. you'll help us. But then it cuts to a close-up on him and he has teeth. He, has he teeth. tries to shoot them through the windscreen and then they, they have to stop and... If she ends up getting dragged out of the car. You don't want to know how deep this goes. There's a werewolf president. We are hailing to the wolf right now. But either way, so she, they drive back to the station and Dee Wallace has an idea and she starts talking on air as a live news anchor about, okay, you know, we've, we've met these terrible people and these monsters and I've, I've had a lot of experiences in the past few days, but I'm going to prove something to you. And she then turns into a werewolf who looks like a little Pomeranian yes, or something like that. Say- She's got a little puppy face and she's sad. She's a crying wolf. And then Hugh Laurie looking dude shoots her with a silver bullet. So not only do we see a woman turn into a werewolf on camera, she gets gets killed on live TV. Leading to one of the funniest moments in the film, though, because the uh, the network or the studio head is like, cut away, cut away, we can't put this on national television, presses a button, and what pops up is a dog food commercial. Yeah, and <laughs> it also cuts to, like uh, you know the way that the Wild Stallions concert cuts to everyone around the world? Everyone's watching Dee Wallace turn into a werewolf, but very pertinently, I don't think this was in the book. I would imagine this is just uh, uh, Dante going, well, what do you think people would think of this? They'd go, nah, the TV news lady turn into a werewolf and they shot her and just that they're totally desensitized to it so again it feels a bit like dawn of the dead and a little bit romero um and just everyone's very au fait about it and then it cuts to a bar where all the guys are like going nope nope that was a werewolf absolutely they exist and then another guy's like can i get a steak please and a hamburger for my friend here cut to the dusky lady how do you want that burger rare and then the the credits roll over a smash burger being cooked on a griddle. And I was like, I can do with a burger right now. <laughs> but it's like they, they refuse to take their sad werewolf thing seriously. Mm. But also the sad werewolf, uh, the, the Pomeranian, makes me think, 
So how much of her was left in there being sad that she was a werewolf, sad enough to cry, and dogs only cry with joy when their, uh, their, their, their parent or master comes back after being away for a long, long time. It takes a lot to get a dog to cry. They can cry, but they need to get super emotional about it. And obviously that kind of works here. But it suggests that if she's got that much of her left still in there... So did everyone, mm. including Bill. Also, missed opportunity. What you said about you don't know how far this wolf rabbit hole goes. Mm-hmm. If she turned to prove the point, and like we start to see execs and uh, engineers and people in the crew going, so like John oh, Wick. Shit growing their teeth and going, we have to stop her, she's going to reveal us to everybody. And it turns out humans are actually the minority by this point. Cut to the White House and Richard Nixon goes, oh shit, they know I'm a werewolf. (laughs) Anyway. Read my lips. I'm not not a a werewolf. werewolf. (laughs) (laughs) So... I've actually missed the best bit of the film, and it's actually only because of a bit in in Gremlins 2. The bit where she's getting attacked by Robert Picardo Wolf again, and midway through the transformation, she grabs a big beaker in this science lab that says on it, it should at least, because this was in Gremlins 2, acid, do Do not not throw throw in face. face. (laughs) She's like, fuck that, throws it all over him, and he ends up with like a half-melted face and a half-werewolf face again. Off the chain in terms of of, of uh, makeup here, but the film itself is bobbins underachieving like crazy and has kind of a weird view on humanity, mm. yes, and sexuality and a connection to any kind of wilder side of ourselves. It's very unsympathetic to werewolves. Yes. It's an anti-werewolf film. It is, which yeah. most werewolf films are, let's face it. Mm. But I, I'm like the werewolf of all monsters. You've got your Bruce Banner character yeah. going, I don't want the, to be this killer. Humanity, yeah. And I mean, it, it even invokes the original Wolfman. Yeah. By showing it on TV, the line about even mm-hmm. a man who is pure of heart. That's a great line it's, and a great concept that you're not using. It is not as good as the Lon Chaney Wolfman. Mm, yeah. And uh, you're just reminding me now that you're not using it. Yeah. No, the Benicio del Toro, the Wolfman, is definitely worth seeing. It's got this incredibly high budget. Like, it, they spent so much on it. It looks amazing. It's not the best version of that story. I feel. I still feel like Del Toro could tell the best version of that story. Well, indeed. It is ground zero for the see how CG really doesn't do werewolf brilliantly. Well, it's a combination because you also do get some practical stuff You do stuff get some there. practical, but that makes it even more stark yeah, you that can, the CG isn't working. You can see the CG stuff. Basically, whenever a werewolf jumps and bounds across a room and it's CG, you're like, well, that looks like shit. Immediately. Yeah. It, they've never made that look good. Indeed. Just get a wolf. You have trained wolves. I've seen them. You have to CG out the tails. They're little. (laughs) Well, true. (laughs) Come on, you never fit Benicio Del Toro in that. Also, they did just make the werewolves in Twilight look like just wolves, Mm. and they were rubbish. Yeah, but they were CG giant wolves. Well, you'd have to make it bigger, or it would be only the size of a regular wolf, and no one's scared of just a regular wolf. Also, they did do that in uh, The Company of Wolves, and they look like like happy Alsatians. They do, but I like it. Anyway, um, so that's The Howling. It's rubbish. The second and third are also rubbish, but in a way that makes them very appealing to us. Indeed, and extremely more entertaining than this. Yes. The second is called The Howling 2, Your Sister is a Werewolf. Party time! Ow! Hey, 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 h
snow. Neil Rocky. Shocking. New wave of horror. Howling 2. Uh, directed by Felipe Mora, uh, screenplay by Robert Samo and Gary Brandner, who wrote the original novels that the first Howling by uh, Joe Dante was based on. And the second and third novels have no association with the film series. So basically, they were just kind of making it up as they go along with the films, certainly for episodes two and three. And then back for the fourth, like I said, they went back and remade The Howling for less money. And it's less good. But this one was, uh, it says country United States. Honestly, if you told me this film thing was filmed in Bulgaria with Czechoslovakia. Czechoslovakia, then I'd be like, well, that makes perfect sense. How is it an American film if everybody on board is pretty much Bulgarian? Um, I think the exec team, such as it was, uh, and the director and uh, the people sort of making the key decisions were American. Although I believe the director, the, the government of Czechoslovakia made him have a local person as his assistant director, uh, but they had no experience of filmmaking, so he kind of had to them out of the way a lot. <laughs> uh, the uh, woman who plays the main lead Teutonic werewolf lady, Sturber, is Sybil Danning, who fairly re- recently enough-ish, kind of, uh, in the Grindhouse movie, she featured in the trailer for Werewolf Women of the SS. So, on brand. And from the looks of it, she's done 72 films, none of which you've heard of. But she is the ringleader in this film. The whole thing revolves around her as this sort of new female cult leader. She's in a Futurama joke. She's in a film called Amazon Women on the Moon. Ha! The Futurama joke is that there is an episode called Amazonian Women in the Mood. That's the one with Snoo Snoo. Anyway, so the title sounds like an insult. Uh, As in, your sister is a werewolf... But it does actually have some relation to the plot because this actually stars the brother of uh, Karen White, D. Wallace, in the first movie. They even recreate the end sequence and have her turn into a very, a far less well-made-up werewolf on TV and then get blasted. Uh, is there some sort of uh, uh, subterfuge where it's like th- she wasn't hit with silver bullets and so she didn't properly die or something? I believe so, yes. That forms the MacGuffin of the first part of the film. Then Christopher Lee turns up. The first five minutes is what you mean. Okay. Christopher (laughs) Lee, the Christopher Lee, turns up as a Van Helsing guy. And he is so, like, he's taken this film so seriously. To his credit, his eternal credit that we have mentioned this repeatedly before, he treats every film with the same dignity and respect, be it Lord of the Rings, be it She, starring Ursula Andress, be it... Dracula, be it Gremlins 2, be it Attack of the Clones, Attack of the Clones, be it Howling 2, Your Sister is a Werewolf. He is kind of the, like I said, the, the Van Helsing. He's there to explain to our breeder pair leads 
what's going on regarding werewolf stuff. And then very lazily, these intrepid heroes kind of don't do anything about the werewolves for an hour and a half, and then do. Correct. That is pretty much it, right? That is pretty much it, yeah. There is also another twist on the uh, title, but I don't want to spoil the ending. Okay, okay. Um, So, after the funeral, which is uh, an open casket affair... Which is a bad idea if, if, if they're a werewolf. Well, shotgun to death. Yes. Um, rifled. But uh, after that funeral, which is a sombre affair, we cut almost immediately to Oingo Boingo. That's uh, Danny Elfman's band. But was it not Oingo Boingo? Uh, right. I'm not sure about this. They were credited as Babel. Oh, then they won't be Oingo Boingo then. Okay, so they were a rubbish band who sound and look a bit like, like Oingo Boingo, slumming it. In the space of seven seconds, we get this sudden massive tone shift as they're singing in a club and loads of people are sort of dancing and bouncing around and they use and use this segment. This piece of music gets brought back repeatedly when they don't quite know what to do in the film and so they just need another montage and they only know one piece of music and it's this. Uh, that we also get Jimmy Nail, which will mean, mean nothing to Americans and very little to British people unless you're 45. Yeah, if I say the phrase crocodile shoes and it means anything to you, yeah. you know who Jimmy Nail is. Or indeed, Spender. Anyway, so he's there for all of seven seconds and he's not in it. What? He wasn't in Spender. He wasn't in Spender? Alfie ain't pet. Hang on a second, who was Spender? Dennis. Oh, the title role in Spender. I apologize. Sorry, I know my regional I detectives. Take it back. He fought against graffiti artists. Okay. Bit of a maverick, not afraid to break the rules. He might, for example, speed in a uh, in a thirty mile an hour zone. Gotcha. I was thinking of Dennis Waterman. I think. Yeah. Unfortunately, someone uh, scrolled the words "cock piss partridge" on the side of his car. Goodness <laughs> knows why, because he's not Alan Partridge. <laughs> Anyway, he operates out of Norwich, which will impress all of the Americans. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so we get this Noingo Boingo version, like cover band uh, tribute act, then Jimmy Nail, and then Christopher Lee again. But this time, like, I think he's trying to go undercover in this kid's club because he's wearing these rad shades. Like, he looks like he could be, like, menacing Batman in The Dark Knight Returns. He's like, we slices and dices. He's that guy. Just the shot of him going, yes, okay, okay, I'll put these on. And, like, he's just been handed them by the director's aide or something like that. And he's like, well, I I suppose so. I must treat everything with equal dignity. And folds his arms and goes, do I look cool? Do I really look cool? He does. Um... But, I mean, that, that, that sort of sets the tone, or rather the lack of consistent tone throughout this whole movie, which is delirious. The whole thing seems to have been shot in some sort of strange, hazy cheesecloth. I, th- I think to make it feel like the stuff that doesn't make any sense makes more sense if you believe it to be a dream. It also makes the light kind of arch upwards, which is, you know, kind of fun to watch. And uh, it, it kind of, it helps if you're on some very powerful drugs and or are completely blind drunk mm. to enjoy this film. This is a late night with your mates kind of movie. Do not put your mum in front of this. No. Definitely. They will they will simply say, What are we watching? watching? You are on some very powerful drugs because you've been taking migraine medication all day. That is true. So I'm I'm kind of in the ideal place for it. So anyway, uh, some punks try to attack a werewolf lady in broad daylight in a uh, building site. 
And it's it's very much like there's a sort of shouting, hey, baby, come out. I got something for you, pretty, pretty. And then they get thwacked in the faces with bottles. And then this werewolf woman, not of the SS, takes them apart. It's fairly amusing. But again, it being broad daylight, I mean, did you did you want to do that? Because every time we get werewolves in this movie, it, it is some of the worst werewolf practical. Like, not bad in the transition stage. But once they're actually supposed to be final beastie versions of werewolves, like you can understand and forgive, they look a bit awkward and mawkish because no one quite knows what the human body would look like were it turning into a werewolf, though Rick Baker has a good idea. Yeah, not like this is the answer. However, these people look like they're wearing cheap gorilla suits from a Halloween store. Yeah, or um, the troll outfits from Willow. Yeah, mm. I mean, no, because the troll outfits from Willow actually had industrial light and magic and, uh, you know, the, the, the Lucasfilm production designers behind them. They they, they look like Wookiees. Mm. These people look like lazy Wookiees, especially during the werewolf sex scenes. Yes, there are more werewolf sex scenes, folks. Uh, in fact, there's even less kind of round up to it. It's the, the, There's a werewolf cult in the middle of this film who are kind of living in the ninth century or something there's a lot of kind of something like crusades era armor knocking about the place where which they could find in this bulgarian bavarian town yeah there's an orgy that takes place at one point when we say orgy we mean in the lightest sense of you probably could show this to your mum. you're not going to see anything going into anything else i definitely would you'll barely see a (laughs) nipple you'll barely see a nipple well um i mean you'll see a nipple yeah (laughs) <laughs> but it's, it belongs to a, a very unsexy, person. sleazy werewolf dude. Yeah. Um, but the, the, the attendees at the orgy mm. are all wearing different costumes from different periods in history. Yeah. Which I thought was quite neat, because it's like, it, it looks like every hundred years or so, they add three or four people to the cohort mm. and just keep rolling. Or that uh, their budget covered them going over to Bulgarian TV and raiding their costume <laughs> wardrobe. Not even saying that's what they were doing. They just grabbed it and then when the security guards came round they yelled cheese it and ran. <laughs> I can believe that, yes. Yeah, I mean like you don't get to release the Howling 2 by spending money, let me tell you that. I mean it's it's kind of heartening watching this kind of film because you think wow, Anybody can make a film, regardless of skill, regardless of planning, regardless of management, regardless of of talent and the ability to... Or script, or rights, or anything. Or anything. It's insane. And you said something about Christopher Lee with... Oh, when he was... Oh, yeah. Okay, so Joe Dante, who directed Gremlins 2, made the first Howling movie. Mm. Uh, Apparently, when Christopher Lee was cast in Gremlins 2, he apologised to Joe Dante for being in this. I'm terribly sorry. (laughs) They they said the Howling one. I saw the first one, which was marvellous, and uh, I I thought I would love to be the Patrick McNee. I'm I'm turning into Ian McKellen here. I would love to be the... So anyway, Sturber does indeed get her norks out, her Bristol cities. And uh, this involves her like whipping off her bra, uh, just, you know, as a sort of a, when I throw this on the floor, let the orgy begin. But then she goes to her bedroom in a four poster bed with the lady who tore apart those dudes on the building site. 
whose name is Mariana, and she is a black werewolf of sorts. And a dude na- who in real life was called Judd Omen, and he plays a character named Vlad, who is this James Remar-style utter creep scumbag. Although I did notice one neat p- uh, bit about Sturber. She started out really old, and then she sucked the life out of a young woman and became young and very attractive. And I'm like, okay. I mean, like, that's definitely not the first time I've ever seen that done. I mean, even just mentioning she with Ursula Andress, that definitely, with the blue flame, had a... And this immortal woman who, uh, you know, lived back in in, uh, ancient... Egyptian times, mm. uh, but it's still around for 19th century colonialists to discover. Yeah, that definitely had an impact on me as a tiny kid and stuck in there, and I needed to re- revisit that blue flame. Mm. I mean, it's but it, it's a different blue flame. It's got shades of Elizabeth Bathory as well, especially when they start sort of talking about the blood of the innocent. Mm. Um, but the the fact that they have this sort of sucking the youth out of a badger. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, a guy called Vlad and Christopher Lee. It's like they got confused about which monster movie they were making here. Werewolves and vampires, they're basically the same. So it would appear. Mm. Similar teeth. So then begins the orgy. And it's, More hair on it's very It's very much a three-person orgy because the budget didn't cover lots of werewolf makeup. Mm. Werewolf for mitzvah, spooky, scary, boys becoming men, men becoming wolves. Uh, first off... Vlad and Mariana go at it on uh, Sturber's say-so. And it's like, okay, this is just a porn film then. Okay, cool. No, wait. Porn films show stuff. This is very much a kind of, like, keep it angled, make sure she... I mean, the the lady playing Mariana is not exactly in a dignified position and they are covered with hair, which, like, if it was getting hot in that bedroom, and it probably was, that glue would have started running. And then when Sturber joins in... They're kind of allowed to sort of hover hands each other, but they don't touch each other. And I was wondering, like, is this because of censorship? They don't want it to get too racy and actually start becoming simulated sex? But Sharon's shaking her head because she knows the actual reason, which is if you touch these grotty merkins all over these technically werewolves, uh, then they're going to start sliding off. Coming right off, and everybody's going to have extremely hairy palms. Yeah, and uh, the uh, you know, for the, to the actors' credit, none of them went on camera at least. Ew! <laughs> because I would have done. <laughs> However, then they somehow have the power that, like, they're not allowed to touch each other, but they do have the power to teleport to the next scene and back. If they wish, mm. our heroes go wandering off through uh, urban Bavaria, uh, looking for a hotel room that they can shag in. It's like a dream I had uh, as a teenager, constantly like reliving this thing. And uh, it's like th- there's werewolves around the corner. Do you want to go and deal with them, especially in the daytime? Because you know night times are coming. But it's like, nah, let's go bone. And somehow Vlad and Mariana are also in the town square dressed as, as, like, Morris dancers or something, spying on them, I think. And then when they start shagging in the bedroom... Oh, sorry, I don't, haven't actually described our heroes, have I? So we've got this perennial wet blanket called Jenny, played by Gwyneth Paltrow's mum, and we've got Reb Brown, who was the other, other Captain America, playing a jean jacket with a pulse named Ben. 
uh, and they have a healthy, if standard, hotel room bonk. So I suppose we finally get that dichotomy I've been talking about in terms of, you know, just, just like make it seem that sex can also not be something absolutely disgusting. But then again, you've also got the journalists in that first one who kind of, it is implied that they have had sex just off camera. I don't, mm, I don't know. It just It feels like, you know, it's the 80s. Go for broke. Show more boning. And, it just, you know, it's, it's pre-90s, pre-getting all terrified, and, and it's, like, right in the middle of video nasty stuff. So, so if we are making these films ostensibly to do horrible things to women, can we have some just shagging in there as well? No? Yes? No? Okay, fair enough. Um, so Vlad, like, either hears or maybe even smells what's going on in the hotel room and starts going, oh! and howling in the street during this parade of, of like, big men in leather shorts uh, uh, and Tyrolean hats slapping their thighs. And children in weird, unmatching papier-mâché masks. Yeah, there is that. It's a, it's a big parade. And the uh, the hotel owner's like, ah, it's uh, the uh, the new full moon, if you know what I mean. <laughs> and Jean Jacket's like, it's not like that at all. That- Jenny's like, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, go on. Yeah, all right. So they make friends seemingly out of nowhere with a a, a little short guy uh, who seems to be part of the French resistance. And then that leads him and Jean Jacket, who, by the way, always carries his trusty revolver with him. He is whipping that thing out and shooting at werewolves all the time. It has infinite bullets. Don't worry about it. He and uh, I'm going to call him... Gustav, the, uh, the 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 little guy. Actually, there's a. Oh, should be Vas- Vas- I want to say Vasilio, but I don't think it's Vasilio. Oh, he's not in the cast list. Why would he be? Oh no, he's the one who's like, now you're gonna suck a werewolf's dick. No, there is no plot. Correct. No okay. Plot is listed. Jean Jacket and uh, uh, French Resistance go on a night raid of the werewolves compound. They bring with them uh, one single gun and like a stick to defend themselves against knights and werewolves. It's this is a great bit where uh, Christopher Lee is running through the list of weapons that he's brought with mm. him. And he says, I have some sacred oil and this titanium bendy blended knife mm-hmm. and something else he mentions that seems questionable. Jean Jacket. Jean Jacket says, do you have any more conventional weapons? And he goes, oh, I have this other, bigger, bendy-bladed titanium knife and some holy water. Never mind, says Jean Jacket. It's the same thing! (laughs) I'll stick with Gunny the Gun. And um, while they're trying to Metal Gear Solid into this werewolf compound, Sturger uh, decides she's going to do some fucking sorcery and starts kind of like howling and using sort of like electricity and howling louder and louder. And then some apes of wrath come running out of the castle at them and they're like, chase it! And they run away. And then the little guy's earplugs fall out and it suddenly becomes really apparent that they really needed those earplugs. And they needed to be able to not hear at all while sneaking into a place, Metal Gear Solid style. Because then he, he sort of falls under Sturger's spell. And you'd think, oh, what, what's going to happen to the poor guy? And he screams and screams and screams and then his eyeballs explode. Right. I'll stop you there. You say explode. They are two red geysers that explode <laughs> out of his screaming head. I felt 
It was lacking in punch. I didn't know werewolves could do that, but apparently they can. No, it's a side skill. So, mystifyingly, Christopher Lee's wandering around this Bavarian village at night now, and then the little guy turns up like looking like Punchinello, or sort of he's got a papier-mâché mask, and he's like, and it's like, chase me, chase me. And it's like that bit in Don't Look Now, but with no dignity. And Christopher Lee's sort of stalking him around and going, you know, this is rather familiar. I remember almost exactly the same thing happening in The Wicker Man. I mean, you're not stealing that, are you? And But before he can levy a court injunction against them, uh, the little guy turns around and goes, eh! and like tries to cut his wrist but in a very kind of half-hearted way so he's just like ow stop that and then jean jacket runs in and goes wait you stay away from my friend and then grabs the little guy and just hucks him out of a glass window (laughs) and he screams all the way down as his eyes are exploding again and lands on some iron spike railings and i'm like this poor sods died more than anyone else in this film and Christop- Except possibly for Karen. Oh yeah, she keeps getting shot and screaming inside her coffin. They keep cutting back to her. It's non-linear time. There's mo- like it goes back to that three-way sex scene with werewolves, and it's like, hang on a second. Like we're not even supposed to be on the same day as that. Are they boning again? Is this a different time? Are they just let's go to the Bavarian village, then we'll come back and bone some more? I don't know. But they keep cutting back to Noingo, Boingo in the club. So again, I feel like it's non-linear, and we're not supposed to take it as beginning at A and finishing at Z. No. Oh, and Chris Lee is trying his best to make sure that there is a body count in this film because every time he wrestles a werewolf to the ground, he's like, I release you, and stabs them with this wavy knife, and then they die. And it's like, that's his solution to everything. When you're clutching a wavy Chris knife, everything looks like a, a, a werewolf. So then we go back to a non-hairy werewolf orgy where it's basically just a lot of extras and models are allowed to kind of dab at each other and kind of simulate sex but it's actually more like interpretive dance than it is like actual sex. Everyone's very much got their underclothes very much on, and they're kind of like fetish gear rather than underclothes. Mm -hmm. You can't see a damn thing, apart from Sturber, who once again has her devil's dumplings out on display. And this is the orgy, sorry, I got this confused with the other orgy. This is the orgy where they have the, like there's a handful of guys in Regency gear, Mm. there's a handful of guys wearing suits of armor, Mm -hmm. and everybody looks like they've been picked up by Bill and Ted at various different points in history. But the guys in Regency gear are (laughs) slapping their thighs and laughing up uproariously and I'm like it feels like when you get together as a bunch of teenagers in someone's house and one of the dudes is like let's watch this porn I have it'll be so funny funny really real fucking uncomfortable and you have to call your dad to take you home (laughs) (laughs) that sounds very specific it makes me feel like that's happened to you oh oh, I forgot as well Um, Wet Blanket got kidnapped and Jean Jacket rescues Wet Blanket yes okay Right. after which she immediately faints and spends the next five minutes hanging over his shoulders Um, Christopher Lee plays Van Helsing to the hilt finds um, Stuber and uh, and goes you know we we were always fated to do this and then runs her through and then they both go on fire and and she's like ah good like we'll be we'll, we're both going to hell tonight and they do and like the scene is set for the ending to be he's driving no jean jacket's driving wet blanket away and he's like i'm so glad i managed to save you from those awful werewolves and uh, wet blanket goes yes ah 
and turns into a werewolf. But that doesn't happen at all. No. What actually happens is we cut back to their apartment and they're just having a fun Halloween and then they get a ring at the door and, the, and the, she jumps onto his back and he and Jean Jacket runs her to the front door and they've got a more of a rapport at this point. I feel like this was a reshoot done a while later mm. and they have been boning ever since then, the actual actor and actress. I would not be surprised if they had been boning. Their, their rapport, is, I mean, like they're not good actors, but they seem to like each other's company. Uh, and at the door, we've got Tito the dog-faced boy who goes, trick or treat, and they go... Here you go, some candy. And then he goes, oh, and then wanders off. And they go, hmm, I wonder what apartment he lives in. Then they go across the hall and knock on the guy's door. And the guy comes out and he's an old priest. And he goes, what? And they go, did your son come and knock on our door to get sweets because it's Halloween? And he went, but I am a priest. I have no son. That werewolf boy has been dead for ten years or something. And they go, huh? And he says, come over to visit any time. And the, then Jean Jacket goes, no. <laughs> and then the credits roll. I'm like, that's not an ending. That's stream of consciousness nonsense. It, I mean, it makes it feel more dreamlike. Oh, I forgot. When... Sturger is nearing the end before Chrisley gets into the room. An old priest, a different priest this time, comes sneaking in to try to kill her in the back with a big axe. But she goes, whoa, hold on a second, and then throws salacious crumb at him. She's got a salacious crumb. On a stick. On a stick. And it's a bat thing. That, And then the guy's like, oh, no! And then this bat's like, oh, those eyes look tasty. Oh, that mouth. you got a pretty mouth, boy. And he shoves his tail all the way in. So we're basically like, it's not a dude. It's human hands pulling at a tail that's stuck inside a papier-mâché head (laughs) whose eyes are bulging out while this salacious crumb goes, ah, 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 ah. And then he dies. But the best part of that is that when... Uh, but when Stuberger and Christopher Lee are, are gone on fire, Salacious pokes his whole head out of the priest's mouth and goes, Aah! No reason. <laughs> and then there's... We cut back to... For the credits, it's Oingo... It's Noingo Boingo again. <laughs> and they're singing the same song again. And we get this... Like, rhythmically, with every sort of sound, Sturber rips off her bra and just vroom. We're like, and it, it happens just over and over again. It's like, do you like tits? Here's some tits. Do you like tits? Here's some tits. And tits. And tits. And tits. And he keeps cutting between that and shots of, like, the various members of the cast throughout the movie. But as if they're reaction shots to Sturmer ripping her dress off. What? They, they, they're clearly just between takes going, I feel silly in this get-up. And at the very end of the song, Salacious goes, that's it, now fuck off. And then the final credits happen. And the final credits happen to an accordion polka. And I'm like, this couldn't be a movie if it tried. This is masquerading as a film. It doesn't have even the basic elements of film. It is a meal composed of tarragon and soy sauce. (laughs) (laughs) So that's Howling 2, Your Sister is a Werewolf. 
It's better and more entertaining than the first one, which is supposed to be a serious werewolf film, I think. So they climb. Whoo! The Howling Three, The Marsupials. Terror can be many things. Dangerous. Exciting. Make love to me again, Donnie. Beautiful. Bizarre. One. The Howling, Part Three. Do you realize what this means, Sharp? A new species of human. This is going to be the greatest scientific discovery of all time. They are here. They are real. One man. We'll learn to love them. I thought you'd hate me when you found out what I was. One will try to save them. I wonder how many more of them there are out there. But others will seek to destroy them. We can't protect ourselves. You've been killing us for thousands of years. What choice do we have? Amuna! Help me! Change me! Are they freaks of nature or creatures from hell? They should be wiped out completely. None of us. Evolutionary freaks. To get our freedom, please. According to these readings, he should be dead. Now, fear takes a brand new form. The Howling Three. Uh, this is a 1987 Australian horror film, and the sequel 
to the Howling? No, it's not. It is not the sequel to any Howling. That's that is Tommy Rot and Pish Posh. Directed by Philippe Mora and filmed on location in and around Sydney, Australia. Starring Barry Otto, Imogen Ansley and Max Fairchild. We've all heard of them. Howling 3 is the only PG-13 rated entry in the Howling film series. And I would also say kind of kid friendly. Like, like the tween kids would, would get a hoot out of this. It's yeah. a hoot. It, it yeah. may be a bit sexy at times, but it's not real. It's too it's, weird, it's gross, too funny. It's too weird for the sexy bits to be sexy. Hmm. Um, and the bits that might be considered a little bit too gross for slightly younger children, teenagers would probably find vaguely appealing. Oh, no. Tweens, tweens would find vaguely appealing. Sorry. Teenagers would be like, this is bullshit. Because they won't have learned to ironically appreciate stuff like this. Gotcha. You have to be a 40-something for that. The screen credits claim that it is based on Brandner's novel The Howling 3, colon, Echoes. That's uh, Gary Brandner, writer of the original Howling. The novel is set in the United States and has a different story than the film, with only slight similarities in terms of plot and a sympathetic view of werewolves. That's the important bit. Mm. This aspect would be revisited in Howling 6, The Freaks. (sighs) <sighs> We're not going beyond this one, though. Basically, like, like, the ones that are kind of worth seeing. The first one for its historical... Like, it's a Joe Dante film, and I would suggest everyone see every Joe Dante film. The second one, because it's just... Your sister is a werewolf. That's the what the German, like, poor porn film. <laughs> where they're sort of, like, poking at each other in fursuits. Very cheap fursuits. I was just about to say, furries would score... Yeah. The, the poor level of quality. It, honestly? Okay, right. That leads me to one of my first points. Uh, they talk about uh, something that happened in, like, the 1920s and was filmed, and it's a tribe of what appear to be Aboriginals who are performing some kind of ritual where one of their number is wearing a mask, and the scientist specifically says, and it's so much more realistic than any of the masks they use. And it's like, you can keep saying that, but then we can see what this looks like in your grainy footage. Mm-hmm. It's it, it, it's a dog head. And they're poking her with sticks. So, I mean, the, the, the core principle of the film is about a lady named... Jaboa. Jaboa. Uh, her surname is also Jaboa. She doesn't have a surname. Okay, just Jabawa uh, Jabawa. Yeah, when she first meets Donnie, he introduces himself as Donnie Martin. And she says, oh, you have two first names. And he says, well, yeah, one's my first name and one's my last name. So mm. she says, oh, my name's Jaboa Jaboa then. Got it, right. Okay, sorry, got confused. Yes, it was meant to be a joke. It's not very funny. It's stuck. I kept calling it Jaboa. I called it Jabu Jabu, the fish from Legend of Zelda. Mm. Okay, so whew, let's go back a bit. Uh, it is considered a standalone film in the Howling series. Even though Philip Mora directed Howling 2, Your Sister is a Werewolf as well, Howling 3 features no references or characters from the previous two films. One might also say Howling 3 features just references but no characters. Well, yes. I mean, you could argue that if you if you stand far back enough and squint, that the werewolf pack in... The first one. Eastern Europe. Oh, right. From uh, My Sister is a Werewolf. Yes. We're all over. Simply being. Hang on, it's it's not supposed to be Eastern Europe. It's supposed to be America. It's just obviously Eastern Europe. Europe. They're burying the lady from the end of the first howling, ostensibly. Mm. This 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 series is going on around the world tour. It really is. 
years. Next but, year okay. in Jerusalem. But, but either way, it could be argued that that tribe of werewolves are simply another branch of the lycanthrope family. Nation of werewolves. I am actually going to observe that. I, I don't... I, okay. Uh, I, I learned after uh, handing uh, Tiger's Eye over to uh, uh, somebody who could help me with sensitivity on it. Don't use the word tribe if you can possibly help it. Fair enough. Okay. It, however, nation of werewolves suggests an entire nation of werewolves. Well, so okay, clan, clan, group, group. They, they are loosely oh, what. family related. Company. And there, there you go. There we go. Okay. okay. However, these aren't really wolves, are they? <laughs> No, they're not. No, they're not. I mean, again, if you stand far back enough and squint, the the creature from which they are allegedly descended is called a wolf. It just isn't a wolf. They just call it a wolf. It's more of a where what? (laughs) (laughs) So, um... We begin with attacks around the world that the American Intelligence Agency... There's no such agency. I checked... The AIA are worried about them and they, they talk about these. That there's something happening in Russia, a little bit of a something happening in... The number of like global organisations that they claim are involved in this story. At, at one point, I believe the Pope is cited. You're joking. The Pope. Oh, my God. There's a scientist man. Is that uh, Professor Harry Beckmeyer? I believe so, yes. Yes, and he's very interested in the werewolves, but not in a we-must-find-and-kill-them way, in a kind of a, I'm really interested in them, like, Mm. I I want to study them. And he's trying to convince his old rich friend that werewolves are definitely out there, and they're standing beside a swimming pool, and at one point, the old rich friend turns and looks directly at the camera and says, could you turn that off, please? And then looks back and carries on the conversation. I'm like, what are we doing? Who was he? Po- who was he talking to? He says something along the lines of, "We film everything around here just in case we need it for scientific research purposes." I feel like that might have just been an a, a improv that they left in, because then it cuts to a rooftop where they're continuing and finishing this conversation. Mm. This is where the rich guy says that uh, he believed in uh, the supernatural until he found out that the Browning film of a UFO was actually a condom full of dog shit and a flashlight. <laughs> where did you pull that from? So there's this beautiful... There's things you could use, even if you're cutting your budget to the bone. There's things you could use to make a UFO model... That would cost less than the disinfectant you'd have to buy to clean your hands after assembling that one. Uh, it just looks like a flashlight in a, in a condom. So uh, we've got to find something else to uh, staff in there. They look around. No. No. You're I mean, doing it. No. Okay. No. The poop had to be on some dirt. Use the dirt next to the there you go, look at that. that. Doesn't that look like a UFO? No, Colin, it doesn't. You know what it looks like, Colin? <laughs> I, I, I don't want to spoil the surprise, but people won't think that this is an unidentified flying... Well, I mean, it will be unidentified because when you throw that thing, no one's going to guess what it is. A thankfully unidentified flying object. <laughs> okay, so there's this beautiful lady who looks a little bit like Linda Hamilton. 
Circa Terminator 1. She does, a little bit. No, 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 I was just wondering why your PC was flashing. Oh, too much memory usage. Okay. <laughs> too much of my memory has been used to remember Howling 3, the marsupials. So, huh, she's trying to sleep on a park bench, some dudes bother her, and she goes, at them, and, like, gets werewolf eyes, right? And then she wakes up, looks at Sydney Opera House. I think she's come from the, the outback where she's been living her entire life. Yes. She's trying to have a kip on the bitch. And then uh, we meet our hero. Is that uh, Max Fairchild's Tylo? Uh, no, uh, Tylo. Oh, Danny is, Martin. Yeah, oh, uh, Donny Martin is the, the boy who. And then we meet the boy, Donny Martin. The boy. Who chases after her and she is pegging it around uh, uh, Sydney. And he's like, no, no, wait. I'm, I'm working on a film set, and you look like you could be in a film. And it's like his directors told him, go out, Donny, and find me a wild-looking lady to be in this film we're shooting today. And Donny's gone, will do, boss. And he's run off and found oh, this lady. Oh, the life of an intern. <laughs> yeah. Also got your coffee. <laughs> There's so many things happen in this film that aren't connected to anything. And you're like, what is going on? We cut to a bus... And there are three nuns, and they're looking for a wallaby, and there's this boy pulling faces at one of the nuns, and eventually she's like, I can definitely smell a wallaby nearby. And then she barks at the boy, who's like, Argh! and she's like, it's like, what? Is that connected to anything? Nope, moving on. That's those three ladies I in know. the cave at the end! I know, but you did you see them turning up at the party? No. Oh, well, I'll get to them in a bit. That th This was not a load-bearing plot point. But they are there somewhere. Okay. Now. I presume the point of them then is just to say, hey, werewolves living among you. Yep. They're werewolves living among you and actually being quite good at blending in. If you're a nun, people don't bother you so much. That's a very good point. Okay. Uh, unless you're the one at the beginning of Abel Ferreira's Bad Lieutenant. Don't be the nun at the beginning of Abel Ferreira's Bad Lieutenant. That's my one rule. Speaking of which... They're a little casual with the R word in this. Like, there's a couple of times when it's thrown out, out as kind of like a joke. Mm -hmm. There's no actual rape in it, but there's, I think, uh, when Jaboa goes for her, I, I say audition, just for the, the, the gross director to check her out, he's like, oh, your, first, your first scene, you'll be raped by four monsters. And she laughs it off. And it's like, why did that line end up in the film? It's worth noting, by the way, that the reason she ran away from home in the first place was that her stepfather was abusing her. Okay. I, I think that is that is something which is implied very loosely. Yeah. It's not blatantly stated. And also he turns out to be somebody who you, you expected to follow as part of the character group. So What happens to him in the end? Is he one of the ones that gets machine gunned? Um, he turns him... I think he turns himself into... He's, it's... Thilo, the, the b bald guy. That fucker? Yeah. Did he die in the end? He turns himself into a big spirit wolf and tries to save them, I believe. Did he die in the end? Let's say yes. <laughs> okay, cool. Right, well, luckily, uh, the abuser <laughs> was shot with a machine gun. So, uh, th that bit's not cool. There's another bit later on where uh, someone, a, a man says to another man, I'm attracted to a werewolf. And they go, it's a girl werewolf, right? Yep. Good, thank goodness for that. And it's like, yeah, you'll fuck a werewolf, but you won't fuck a guy, because that would be unnatural. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Let's please, let's please not... Like, don't even bother if you've got to the end of this film and said werewolves are people too. Don't even bother with the no homo, okay? <laughs> no, right. Remember when we said bladders were cool? When we were talking about uh, werewolf transformations? 
Oh, as in under the skin. Yeah, to, like yeah, palpate the face. This movie manages to convince us that actually they're not. Because it... It overuses. It overuses bladders to a crazy extent. Like, there's a really crappy werewolf transformation in this movie. But the thing is, it's about the same as the real werewolf transformations within this movie. So it's kind of like... Um, diegetic versus non-diegetic music, or <laughs> diegetic werewolf transformations, or the more market, the more well-known, like a crap, a pretend movie within a movie that's mm. always crap yes. by comparison to the movie itself. You're supposed, if you're gonna do it yourself, like make that werewolf transformation really crap, so that then your later on ones actually look kind of gruey, mm. as opposed to using the same equipment twice. Bingo. But when he turns into a werewolf, it's actually not a werewolf. It looks like a giant Muppet with a long beak. And I'm like, what? What? As it turns out, they've actually got something of a historical axe to grind here. And it kind of gave me pause for thought. They talk about the Tasmanian tiger, a now extinct creature that was slaughtered on orders from Queen Victoria in 1888. And they show ancient camera footage of the, like, the last known Tasmanian tiger. And the, apparently the werewolf people in this are somehow related back to this Tasmanian tiger. Like it's, it, it, it imbued them with their the, metamorphosing or the something. The idea is their people came about because, uh, well, the way Jaboa tells the story, a man fell in love with a beautiful wolf. But it wasn't a wolf, it was a Tasmanian tiger. As long as it wasn't a dude. And the 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 product of their love. Sorry, hang on. I can't believe I didn't catch that. But it wasn't a wolf, it was a Tasmanian tiger! Taz Tiger! Um <laughs> so Notably, the B-52s recently spoke out in defense of trans rights. They really are shiny, happy people. That's, that's where her people are descended from. Yeah. But after that line was sort of broke away. <laughs> <laughs> that line is broken. It has <laughs> been, been remade. remade. Oh! Um, it was after that that the Tasmanian tiger was then wiped out. Mm. Okay. So Jaboa goes to this fancy dress party, I think? It's it's like it's a rap party for yeah, this awful it's a film. a party for the movie. I, I think the idea is everybody's turned up in a collection of costumes mm. and, and is just being ridiculously silly. This is after she like gets grabbed and throttled by a werewolf in broad daylight in the park and just goes, ah, and screams. And then the director's like, do it again, and again, and again, and again. And I'm like, that's one thing as a director I would never do. Make somebody scream repeatedly. Mm. Because you can fuck their throats. Indeed. That's, that's really shitty. Uh, but he's, he then says, you're better than Janet Lee in The Psycho. <laughs> Which I suppose is n nice. She she doesn't get the well, reference. She she's been living in the outback her entire life, unless they sort had psycho on the TV. She's dedicated to her art. This girl. She's mm. saying that I, I look that wasn't great. Can I have another go at it tomorrow? And he's like, darling, that was better than anything Janet Lee did in the Psycho. Yes. Uh, um. So. While she's at the party, there's loads of strobing lights, and then she's like, "Oh no, it's happening!" After she and what's his name? Donnie. After she and Donnie have uh, had sex, she was like she is covered in condensation. So is he. And so is he. Um, 
they have sex, and then he sort of checks under the sheets while she's sleeping, and she has a lot of very downy hair around about her lower tummy, and it's like she, it's just out of control there. But she's also got what appears to be kind of either an appendix scar or potentially a, a cesarean scar, and he's like, oh, I wonder what that is. It comes back later, folks. That is a plot-bearing scar. Can you guess what it is? Okay, so with the flashing light, she's like starting to wolf out. And so she's like, geez, Louise, and runs out into the street and eventually turns into a werewolf, ends up on a, uh, like with doctors and scientists studying her while she's tied to the table. And the doctors discover that she has a pouch. That's what the scar was. And that she's now pregnant because of the they having sex with. They she's pregnant. Yeah. It's like, they're like, it hormonally she appears to be pregnant but it can only have been a few days because we can't see anything mm. oh as she leaves the party well, by the way bad moon rising straight out of fucking uh, well, although it's a different cover version uh, not definitely not Credence um, from American Wealth in London is playing on the radio kind of feebly at one point mm. In a kind of a, yeah, we love American Werewolf in London, and damn right. There are so many elements to this film that you just know are the answer to the question, well, what can we afford the rights for? Then? <laughs> uh, but yeah, just as she leaves the party, three nuns turn up with, re- like, with really like awful-looking hyena face werewolf faces, and they were like, ah! And they get led into the party, and it's that comedy shot of, like, you see them walking into the party from the outside, and then you just hear screams from the inside, and every other partygoer comes barreling out. Yeah. So it's like, these these nuns are on the run, and they're having some fun with their wolf gear. Indeed. I mean, we're talking, like, tank girl kangaroo level. Oh, you wish. That was, I think that was Jim Henson's Creature Shop, by oh, comparison. Wow. Okay, fair enough. Yeah, this is... Bad. His... His rotten eighth cousin, four times removed, Geordie. Geordie Henson. Geordie Henson. With Kermot the Toad. (laughs) 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 Geordie Henson and his bucket of recycled plastic. (laughs) Oh. (laughs) You'll never guess what I used for a flying saucer. (laughs) Anyway. At this point, after she, the doctors discover she's got a pouch, the whole film veers to the left, and we now are following a ballerina from Russia named Olga. And I'm like, hang on, what? What? Okay, she appears briefly in a newspaper article being read by the guy who is researching werewolves. Or- it's almost like marsupial werewolf pulp fiction. Like, yeah. we've moved on from Vincent <laughs> Vega and Marcellus Wallace's wife. This is the gold watch story. Yeah. So, Olga And I am crediting this film with way more coherence and organisation and storytelling appeal than than it actually has. Indeed. Olga is... Olga is a Russian ballerina who has left the Soviet Union. It was still the Soviet Union. At that point, yes. Not for long. (laughs) Like Linka in Captain Planet. Yeah. So... um, With the power of werewolf. She is going to... Go to Australia and marry 
and there's a lot she's of she's a russian bride like, well yeah kind of but the also she's kind of like a kgb defector she's like black widow but a werewolf yeah. and a ballerina yeah but specifically the guy she's supposed to be marrying is also a werewolf but a different type of werewolf and the idea is oh yeah she gets shown a picture of him uh, and like, that she starts going and she like the actress does this crazy thing with her teeth uh, her name is uh, dagmar blahova as olga gork and she's just like lying back on the bed and, and, and twinkling her toes in her ballerina shoes and going, ngang, 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 hubba, hubba, oh, at this fucking photo. <laughs> Tongue rolls out. And then they're out during the ballet and she sort of wolfs out while she's there. But like, the, it's so grey and sweaty, the werewolf transformations in this. They are not animalistic oh, oh, so oh. much as mutant. Did they steal the wolf heads? from an Australian theme park. Are they actually like theme park mascot heads? It would not surprise me in the slightest. They do kind of look like that, don't they? Again, fursuit fans would be like, not would in be that. Shocked. Never in Shocked, that. I tell you. Fursuit fans could make you a better version of this, oh, yeah. probably for less money. But your no, no, no. Your budget would not cover the, for the price of their fursuits. Okay. No, no, not, not this budget. No, 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 no. <laughs> okay, so... <clears throat> Uh, Olga ends up strapped to another scientist bed, and it's like, couldn't whatever they're doing here with Olga also be done with Jaboa? Like, everything they're doing is pretty much to the same end. Mm. Yeah, kind of. They're kind of connecting it to like, Russian wolves, Australian yeah, marsupials. But, but don't forget, part of what they're trying to seed at this point is <clears throat> that there are numerous marsupial werewolves. Mm spread around the world, all of different types mm. and, and varieties. And the, the, if you focused everything on Jaboa, then they wouldn't have that. Also, they're doing that thing where, like, scientists in movies who've got a, a zombie strapped to the table are like, they wave their fingers half a millimetre away from its gnashing mouth. And they're like, oh, look, I'm just going just gonna to poke my fingers there. Oh, well, there's a bite response. And it's like... What's the best you think is going to happen relative to the worst that's obviously going to happen? There's, there's a point where one of them gets bitten and his colleague says, you're going to turn into one of them now. And he goes, and oh, no, it needs to be saliva oh, no, no, exchange no, no, no. or no, something. It's got to take more than just a bite, like some exchange of bodily fluids. Dude, A, how do you know? Mm. B, Every werewolf movie ever. you've ever watched... It's just a scratch. ...that you're classing as research <laughs> at this point... Please don't tell me that your blueprints for doing this are Back to the Future. Um, all kind of hint that, yes, just a bite is all it takes. Mm. Either way, now is not the time to be going, <laughs> well, it's not going to happen to me. Anyway... Um, I just like uh, it, although when, annoyingly it doesn't. When scientists do that in movies, like hover their hands really close to a vampire or a werewolf or a zombie, it, like it's it's so annoying to me because it's like it, you are purposefully making your characters stupid. Like not only the people doing that, but no one around them says, "Get your fucking hand away from that." Like, no one has the sense to go. Well, they're restrained, so obviously they can't lean forward half an inch and bite me. Fuck off. Fuck off with that. Yeah. Also, um, the the people making the movies wherein these things happen seem to think that research scientists go around in the lab poking chained up dogs with sticks and things like that. And that constitutes an experiment. <laughs> experiment one. Poke, poke, poke. Inconclusive. 
fetch the condom. <laughs> so what did your experiment consist of? I hit a rabbit with a hammer. And inconclusive. What were you trying to prove? No, it doesn't matter. Fetch me another rabbit. <laughs> and a condom. So... <laughs> <laughs> we broke her, folks. Right. Okay. <laughs> so while Olga is strapped to this gurney, um, the dog man cometh. <laughs> this giant like man in the background just goes ah and just turns into a weird dog or something. Was that the guy she was supposed to marry? Um, it's Thilo. She's supposed to be marrying Thilo. Right. He, the abuser? Yeah. Oh, for it, fuck's sake. He's kind of disconnected from that at this point. Uh, you know, <coughs> they didn't do a very good job of saying she'd been... that Our uh, apparent heroine, Jaboa, had been abused by him because I did not know that and I've seen this film twice. Mm. Right. Uh, so... <clears throat> well, I only picked it up from the uh, plot in the Wikipedia summary, so maybe that's wrong. Jaboa, a young Australian werewolf, flees her sexually abusive stepfather, Thilo. Oh, my God. I mean, that's a... Like, just just fleas the werewolf colony will do. Why is it going to be a sexually abusive stepfather? For fuck's sake. Anyway. Because, like, that, that kind of stuff pollutes films that would otherwise be uh, undiluted joy. Yeah. It is absolutely and most definitely a subject for films to tackle, but it needs to be handled seriously. Okay. So, uh, the dog man cometh, and he throws a scientist out the window. And it, it's... I love cutting to a body tumbling over a cliff or, uh, or out of a window that is manifestly a dummy. I love that. I don't know why I love it so much. I think it's just like, it's cinematic code that goes, obviously we're not going to throw a real stuntman off this cliff. This is a figurative, symbolic, it's not very good, but uh, it's, it's a, a version, an effigy of a man. So, you know, it's kind of like a voodoo thing. So the dummy falls and you know that they're and dead. The, the best part is when they hold on the dummy for ages. Mm. Because what they're communicating at that point is, we know it's a dummy. You know, you know it's, it's a, dummy. a dummy. We know you know it's a dummy. We don't care. Isn't this fun? <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. And at this point, if you told me that that dummy was constructed out of condoms full of dumb shit, I would believe you. <laughs> and the music that plays at this point goes, all fall down. Like, that shows how seriously they're taking this movie. Yes. I.e. not. Not at all. So we now retreat to the outback where uh, Jaboa gives birth to a little baby kangawolf. And I think this is probably where the uh, FX are at their best because they're trying to convince you that this thing is a living creature and a, uh, an infant baby wolf thing. But because we have no reference for what that should look like, it looks like a sort of a, a blind naked mole rat thing. And it's kind of gross, but you're like... That looks like it's a baby. What sells it, honestly, is... And, and don't get me wrong, the model is good. Mm. In terms of it communicating that this does appear to be an alive thing, mm. um, in, in spite of the fact that it's a naked little baby with its eyes squeezed shut, yeah. it's it, how Imogen Annesley responds to it. Yeah. She is entirely, uh, like lovingly surprised by what she's seeing mm -hmm. and maternally devoted and it's Delighted. gross. I'm not even going to describe the scene. It there, there are things about it that just make me go, oh my God, that's disgusting. 
but it's really sweet. It's the miracle of childbirth. Yeah, I've been there. It was disgusting. Jesus Christ, folks. <laughs> Your mileage may vary. So <laughs> It was gross then. It's gross now. No, I'm kidding. Okay, so now they're kind of like the X-Men when they retreated to the Outback, only they have no plan, which the X-Men did have a plan. Or, I've uh, put, uh, if the X-Men were all Wolfsbane um, and they didn't really want to do anything but survive, alternately, Nightbreed with pouches? Yeah, I mean, they, they do... You say they have no plan, ultimately find their way into a safe spot in the outback and, and not die is the extent yeah, of it. Yeah, survival is the plan. But they... the the. When they get there initially, the plan is to get back to Flo, which is where Jaboa comes from, right. and find somebody from her clan who can help them get to a safe place in the outback. So a bunch of scientists come to try to get them back, and there's some dudes blundering around with machine guns. There's various marsupial werewolf attacks. Uh, the ballet dancer does say one important thing at one stage, where they're like, why pouches? Why is it so important that we have pouches? And she says uh, that the that because the baby can crawl into the pouch and hide, it effectively gives the baby werewolf a chance of living, that she, her village was attacked and she survived as a result of being a marsupial. So I'm like, oh, okay. I feel, again, like I'm learning stuff here. Well, I mean, if you look at the the... I'm theorising here. I am not well studied in how marsupials evolved. But they they pretty much only exist in Australia and the surrounding islands. Mm-hmm. And it, it's possible that it's it's something along the lines of, like, a wolf would have a den for the cubs to stay in and she would protect that and keep them safe that way. If you can't dig because the ground is too dry and hard, you have nothing in which to shelter your babies. And there's various various different ways that evolution will deal with this. Guinea pigs, for example, they pretty much only come from Peru. And guinea pig babies are alive, awake, ready to run within, like, hours of birth. They, They are little miniature adults really fast because they need to be able to protect themselves. You know, guinea pigs don't really make nests, so maybe this is just the the marsupial way of looking after babies that are born quite unable to look after themselves. Mm. It feels like the the person who made this watched a lot of the Australian National Geographic, found out about the Tasmanian tiger yeah. Yeah, and the uh, marsupials in general, and, and figured I can splice this in with the whatever werewolf property is knocking around the place. Mm. Uh, someone said recently, I can't remember what it where I heard it that you know why bother making this film if you're going to take this name and make it nothing to do with that, it's to get people in the door, mm. ultimately. Yeah. That the reason that, that Troll 2 was called Troll 2 rather than Goblin was because there was, uh, you know, Troll 2 was available to buy and because Troll 1 had made some money, horror fans go, oh, I like the first one and I don't expect them to be that closely linked. At least they weren't before. Nowadays, there's a bit more sort of call for lore. There is lore in this. Of a sort. But yeah, ultimately, that, that's how movies get made that bear no resemblance to other films within the uh, uh, series. It's because the name is kicking around. No one else wants it, and the highest bidder, and they didn't bid highly, can make a film loosely based. Did you see the budget, by the way? It had a budget? 
Two million dollars or one million dollars? Is that two million Australian dollars? I don't know. Okay. That seems about right for the uh, kind of production values we're talking about. Anyway, let's finish up. It seems about right in the sense that they did not bother making a budget, adding up any balance sheets or anything like that. They just went, oh, I don't know, a million? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Either a million or two million. A million, that sounds about right. Yeah. Could we have one, two? Two million? million? Yeah. Okay, so... um, for, they're happy in this colony. They've got this baby. The guys with machine guns get seen off or killed or something or other. Yeah. Uh, they're being guided around at this point by Kendi, who is a, a Australian Aboriginal from Jaboa's village. And he is played by a guy called Burnham Burnham, who was a, an Australian Aboriginal activist and did lots of stuff hmm. to sort of further the Aboriginal cause. I do feel like if they'd just played this film straight, they actually might have been able to make something effective. Like, had it well written and, you know, drew comparisons between species going extinct, mm. uh, on a, like the whole Queen Victoria ordered all Tasmanian tigers killed, it's the same kill order on these werewolf people. Mm. Like, you can make something like that, but because they also wanted to have a fuck about, the serious elements kind of blindside you, and for a lot of people will probably just get lost in the mix. Mm. Yeah. Although I do like it when serious, more serious elements of what a, a story can thematically be about mm. are woven in with a really naturalistic, funny performance. Yeah. Honestly, laughter will help convey that stuff. Mm. Technically, uh, Shaun of the Dead does play it straight with a lot of its key stuff, yeah. is what I mean. Like yeah. It's fucking hilarious, but it commits when it matters. Yeah. And I feel like the mother-baby scenes were the few times when it actually committed. Mm. That's probably why the effects look quite good at that yeah. point. Our boy Donnie Martin is very happy with his uh, crazy new hairy baby, and... Uh, he and Jaboa want to go back to the city. And he's talking with the scientist, Professor Henry Brackmeyer, who says, <clears throat> and I'll quote this one, they want to go back to the city, disguise themselves, change their identities, blend in with the human population, which is going to be uh, hard for uh, Jaboa, less hard for Donnie, of course, since mm. he is technically human. Um, but yeah, the, the, the scientist warns him, it'll be dangerous. Donnie replies, not if we're careful. No, Donny, it'll still be dangerous, but you'll be careful. That's the way that particular dynamic works. You being careful doesn't make it less dangerous. Anyway, so we cut forward 18 years. There's shots of Donny now as a director with a moustache having arguments with Jaboa regarding what shooting the next scene. And he's like, you've got to put more sex in it. And she's like... This is a lady falling apart on the street and you want it to be more sexy? And, you know, she's speaking her mind and is very much kind of a Linda Hamilton-James Cameron relationship. You know, they don't start throwing plates at each other, but it's there. And we then cut to a a weird school with nothing but orange shirts. The uh, uh, Professor Harry Beckmeyer is teaching about the same thing and you know that he's still showing the same old footage of the uh, uh, wolf-headed person getting poked with sticks 
and his entire class are wearing orange shirts. The boys have got a darker kind of orange and the girls have got a lighter kind of orange to distinguish that there are two genders, folks. And they all look like they're in prison. It's so weird. Don't put everyone in orange shirts. <laughs> anyway, so this guy who's never acted a day in his life and doesn't act today comes down and goes, Remember when that dingo got your baby? I was the baby. And the professor's like, oh, yeah? And uh, they hug, and he says, oh, yeah, better watch uh, TV tonight. And then we rush over to the Sydney branch of Habitat, and they're filming really... They just sort of ran in and filmed really quickly the scientist and his wife, who is Olga, the uh, Russian ballerina, um, sat on these gorgeous futuristic couches, because it's 18 years in the future, which makes it... 2005 and they're watching tv and it's the oscars or something it, it is the oscars it says it's the 82nd awards of the academy of laser arts and sciences that's the one the oscars we all know about the laser arts and sciences and day madna herself is presenting the award and i was just like i was like we've got the shout factory blu-ray and it's a real like it's a really good transfer of a horribly filmed film <laughs> And I have never seen Dame Edna that up close, like, you know, being able to see Barry Humphreys in, in full glory. And it's just, it's kind of, it's, it's surreal to see her here presenting the award to Jaboa for Best Actress. They do the usual movie thing of never mentioning the other movies. And if they do, they'll just say what the movies are. We won't see the clips. So That's not how it they works. They don't say what she's getting yeah. this award they just say, for. She's getting the award for being Best Actress. A series of photographs of a woman who is clearly not 18 years older than she was when we last saw her. Well, she's got marsupial powers. So it would appear. But yeah, there's loads of photographs going. And showing that she has had 18 years of being top top level actress and she's now gotten to the one would assume the kind of uh, Kate Winslet now stage mm. you know yeah. just a few years shy of being a dame even though she looks exactly as young as she was before she's like oh thank you very much I just want to sort of you know dedicate this one to my mum or something I can't remember exactly what she says the, all the paparazzi down the front of the Oscars start taking photographs of her and she goes oh wait a minute no no and then everyone watching at home including Olga the ballerina who starts gnashing her teeth again because she can't get enough of that goes oh no and then the nuns are all watching on their telly fully wolfed out going yeah and it's it harkens back to the end of the original howling where she turns into a werewolf on camera however how ever <sighs> if they draw the line between photosensitivity and epilepsy and photosensitivity in lycanthropy, insofar as sudden strobing lights might induce a seizure or indeed transformation into a werewolf. If that's the case, don't be Catherine Zeta-Jones. You'll get photographed with flashbulbs all the time! What are we doing here for this ending? I got a better question for you. How has she made it to award, uh, Oscar award winning actress without, without ever having been photographed by a flashbulb camera That's before? what I mean. <coughs> 18 years of clearly, definitely having that paparazzi trying to like, like lie in the gutter as she gets out of a limousine so that they can film up her chuff. And suddenly the flashbulbs start happening and she's like, whoa, I did not expect this. And we're like, we expected it. 
And that's the end of The Howling, folks. They start as they mean to go on, and they end as they began. It's crazy. Of these three, I would say all of them are worth seeing for different reasons. And you can't often say that about trilogies, can you? No. no. Indeed not. Evil Dead 1, 2, and 3 are different in, dif- in the same kind of way. They are, yeah. Yeah, I suppose so. The first one is... Straight horror Straight with a little bit of dry black humour. Yeah. The second one is... Comedy horror that's very exaggerated in both. And goes completely off the deep end occasionally. And is way funnier than it is scary, yeah. but still scary. And the third one is entirely divorced from anything that came before it. It's a medieval fantasy with skeletons. But funny in its own right. Indeed. Mainly down to Bruce Campbell. Yes. Either way, folks, we hope you've enjoyed The Howlings. Let's end on some... Off-brand American Werewolf in London pinched music. <laughs> I see a bad moon rising. I see trouble on the way. I see their quakes of lightning. I see bad times all day Don't go out tonight Cause it's bound to take your life There's a bad moon on the rise School of Movies is funded by Patreon, and our $15 sponsors get credit every episode, so thank you to... Oh God, do I do this the whole time? Aaron Lecluse, Abel Savard, Alejandra Vargas, Alex Brewington, Angus Lee, Benjamin Hoffer, Brian Novak, Cassandra Newman, Chris Finnick, Oi, Christopher Wolf, I know that guy, Kieran Dashler, Connor Kennedy, Dan the Marsupial Mayor, Daniel Salgueiro, Dan Hepner, Dave Harry Hickman, David Sheely, Finbar Nicole, Frankie Punzi, Greg Downing, Jameis Enright, Jesse Ferguson, Joe Crow, Joel Robinson, Johan Clawson, you don't want to get clawed by him, son. He's gone cockney. Joe Gluck, Kevin Vey, Lorraine Chisholm, Marty Polmeyer. Matthew A. Siebert, Michael Asco, Sean Doran, Toby Skills Jungius, Tim Rosansky, throw another shrimp on the barbie for Timothy Green, Tom Painter, Timu Hellas-Hayo, Sarah Montgomery, and Werecat Esman. Next week, since it's Halloween, the nightmare before Christmas, which must be spent on the beach. 